so I'm Ruth Waldick. I'm, I'm an ecologist and climate adaptation researcher, I guess you'd say. And I'm working on the board of Transition Salt Spring on the issue of climate adaptation. And with this, the focus from a climate action plan that we developed where I did a risk assessment and impact assessment, what came out on top for us were issues like drought and fire. And so what I'm working on with the organization is looking at techniques that can reduce the vulnerability of the communities of our community living in a forested system while in building resilience in the natural environment and for the community to things like water shortages, drought, heat events, fire, extreme weather, etc. And a lot of this actually from the analysis came down to the simple fact of we need to undo some of the harm, the bad management that we have legacies of on the land that have created some of the, the vulnerabilities for the community. So my focus is really as a scientist in setting up experiments and trials to look at strategies to, to build resilience and reduce areas where we know we're vulnerable. So so there's a number of things that, that we're working on that I think are of, of interest. The first thing that maybe I'll say is that while we were doing the climate action plan, so I was looking at climate projections and my lens is very much not just on the shifts in weather systems, but on extreme events, including heat changes in precipitation, the timing, et cetera, not just you know the extreme events, but the overall shifts that will be affecting our systems. And in doing that, we developed a really good relationship with Salt Spring Fire Rescue Services because they're equivalently concerned about fire. And as with you on Cortez and really all the, the communities in the Salish Sea, including the Sunshine Coast and, or the CDF zone rather, and the, you know, west, the eastern Vancouver Island, we're all in the same boat. We have extremely high wildfire urban interface, and we have different forest systems than typically are spoken about by fire rescue services, but even more importantly by the province. So the province has developed fire smart guidelines that are really for infrastructure protection. They're not at all about forests. And people have been sort of adopting those and then thinking that they can translate those into the broader systems. But then there are other reasons why that's not good. And so we've been working to make sure that we can align the conversation so that people don't see that there's a conflict between the guidance for protecting your, your home and infrastructure from potential fire, from what we're talking about, which is how to reduce the potential for a catastrophic fire in the forests on the island and around your home without undermining the forest systems themselves or affecting surface flows or water recharge, or et cetera, et cetera. So what they told us at that time was get me the science <laughs> because they are relying on this science that comes from UBC Forestry and the Ministry of Forestry, which is, which is pretty well entirely 
arriving from the interior forests and where the com large scale commercial forestry operations are going on, which as you well know, are not appropriate for this area. So with that re relationship in hand, we felt very confident moving forward to generate some science. So one of the things that I want to, to update you about is the, we are working in the north and a watershed on Salt Spring Island that it supplies a significant amount of water to potable water to the community. It has almost the entire upper watershed is protected. So it's kind of a perfect spot for experimentation. The land is owned by the Waterworks District and they've given us permission to set this up as basically like an experimental lake. So long-term experimental treatments and monitoring so that we can actually try to quantify and, and give defensible evidence for the importance of retaining natural understory, the importance of thinning trees to create fire breaks in a particular way that will enhance moisture and biological diversity and complexity, et cetera. So that's what we're, that's what I'm very pleased to say that we're working on. So we are working with some foresters to develop that are forestry based to apply in this way to create these treatments that we will monitor and quantify the benefits of in this, in this area. So one of them is skip and gap thinning, which is a way of dealing with the over dense regenerated, regenerated trees that we have in this watershed, but all over the island where the closed canopy is preventing the understory from, from thriving and it's reducing the growth of the trees that are present and creating um, a high amount of stress in these systems where we are now approaching after 60 or 70 years of this dense region, a period of, of uh, natural thinning. So the amount of fuels being input through blow natural thinning process, these vast areas of what were clear cut and, and post burn region are now creating huge areas of vulnerability for catastrophic fire. So we need to figure out how to manage the fuels. We need to figure out how to, like the fuels being the fine fuels, the coarse fuels on the ground, the ladder fuels, the canopy. And so this is really the language that we're looking at. And it's a landscape that really exemplifies a lot of these problems across Salt Spring, but also on other Gulf Islands. And I'm working with some people on others and some of the other Gulf Islands and, and from Vancouver Island to apply and then communicate some of the techniques that, that we're testing there. So that's, I can go into a bit more detail on that, but that's one of the things that is really, I think, relevant. In the process of doing this, I've been reaching out to a lot of other practitioners. So Mark has actually participated in some of the webinars with Transition Salt Spring to share some of his experiences in managing the forests on these islands and, and, and trying to do it in a, in a sustainable and locally relevant way, which is also challenging because we still do fall under all these provincial, you know, expectations, which are not which don't consider the nuances of smaller rural communities. So the, uh, what we're also 
learning is there are no, there is really a lot of different individuals who are developing some techniques and working on things independently, but there's no concerted, you know, kind of collective range of knowledge and practices. And so that's something that's really needed is to create a community of practice among, I think, really the, the people who are already managing forests. So community forest lot owners, the sellers, people who are familiar with this, but also groups like the Galliano Conservancy, who are active forest managers themselves and um, land trusts. There's interest across the board with organizations that, that have forests that own or are responsible for managing these areas. So in understanding that and that the knowledge is kind of distributed <laughs> through our region, I am organizing a workshop on February 27th. So it's a, a first conversation about the issue of fire in the coastal Douglas fir biogeoclimatic zone. Okay. So that invitation is to be circulated to yourselves, but also to your other, other members of your community nearby that you think should be participating in this discussion. And the objective of this workshop really is to share the actual experiences because what, what I know is that the province has currently recruited some people from the mainland associated with the standard, you know, forestry commercial practices to develop a fire smart guidelines for the forests and the concern is that one size doesn't fit all and when that comes down it's not going to serve us very well in this region i've been speaking to some people from lori daniels team and they are aware of this. And of course, that's the area that that's the coastal Douglas fir systems that they're focusing on, which are very different because they're lightning prone systems. They're large, still large areas of clear cut, single age forest stands, and they have huge amounts of slash piles that they're still burning. And so it is really the forestry sector itself that is responsible for creating these large fuel piles that then ignite and create these massive fires. So, so we have this situation where there's a perception on Vancouver Island and even you know, in the Gulf Islands that this level of, of extreme catastrophic fire that we're seeing on the mainland is, going, is true for us and it actually isn't. And certainly what we're seeing here in the Southern Gulf Islands is some people are just taking down trees on their properties because they're concerned. And one of the things that, that, it, that I want to point out at this workshop to everybody is that we're not the same. This is a rural landscape with a very high proportion of the forested land in private ownership. So that means that the government actually has no, they play no role in advising or managing for the risk on those areas, which is why the work that we're doing in our experimental watershed and work that is happening on other islands, we need to start pulling that together because we need to start to develop resources and information and sharing it as much as possible because there are no methods or techniques that are known for private landowners to manage safely their own forests without just cutting them down. So that's part of the objective is to make it clear that this area is different from this perspective and certainly 
the wildfire urban interface or urban or rural, you know, resident interface is definitely the highest in the Gulf Islands of anywhere in British Columbia. So, and the, as is the private land ownership. So the problem is ours, I think at this time, but it's a, so starting off, we wanna to talk to the practitioners about the realities of managing forests, of managing for various values, not just, you know, so the, the timber value for the milled wood, for, you know, I remember distinctly, and this is something I'd like to come, you know, I really, Mark, I really want you to be one of the people speaking at the, <laughs> at the session on practitioners. Excellent, thank you. Because a lot of people don't know the realities. You know, if you talk to people at the university or me, I don't know these things. They don't know the practical realities that the take that you are required to take a certain amount of wood, but you don't need to take that much and you don't even want to take that much. And then there are issues of the actual procedures for taking. So for example, Galliano used a technique that is not accepted or it's not listed as an acceptable tree harvest technique, but it does make sense on small properties. So we've got this issue of scale and objectives that we're, you know, in smaller communities, this is very different. So I want that to, do I want documentation. I want the practitioners to talk about it. I want people to hear about it. I'm going to document it. And then I'm going to try to, try to create a, a dossier and repository of information and resources for people to better understand as if what, what, where are our problem? What are we doing? What are the challenges? What are we concerned about? What do we and don't we know? And, you know, what are the next steps in this conversation? So in order to do that, I've got following the practitioners, I'm having a panelists who will be able to shed light on from their perspective as, you know, people from the provincial government or people who are working extensively through the province on the issue of forestry to try to contextualize what they're hearing from our practitioner in the in, relative to what they're aware of in the broader landscape. And then to hone the conversation down in the afternoon to something that the land trusts, conservancies and island trusts are very, and, and fire rescue are very concerned about is how do we get private forest managers and private landowners to actually act? Because it takes money. We have to educate them. There, there need to be resources and how do we do this? So the conversation by the practitioners is going to inform the discussion about educational tools, regulatory tools, incentive tools. So I'm going to try to bring some of the, we've got the Island Trust, Island Trust Conservancy, CRD, some provincial people who will be there to listen. So this is really not, we're not coming up with solutions necessarily at this, but I think it's the really important first conversation in the, in the region and what I'm hoping, okay, I can't see that. <laughs> so I'm hoping that, that, that following this, um, some opportunities will open up, open up for collaboration and for creating a community of practice and maybe some, some trial sites and demonstration sites and maybe some resources can come in. So that's this other really big piece that I'm working on. And what was my other bullet there? I think there might be one other thing that I wanted to mention. Right, got that one. Right, yeah, so the, the, so the education thing, I mean, this is something that Transition Salt Spring has, has in mind. So 
I know some people here are familiar with the Climate Coach Program of Transition. Can I just get a sense of how many people have heard of that in this group? No, okay. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I love the I love the frog. So we have where we're going, we're, like personally within Transition Salt Springs. So I'm telling you the big, you know, so I'm saying here we're doing this pilot project. It led to this need for a community of practice to emerge in the Salish Sea. And I think also, Mark, the other thing that I would like people to know is this, this partnership that you have with, with your First Nations, you know, locally to set values and to participate in this and to how you use the wood to show the way forward, because I think that's a beautiful model. And, and so that we can learn from each other rather than everybody you know, going after the same money or struggling and so forth independently. So that's the second piece. And then the third piece is what do we do? And so with Transition Salt Spring, our focus really is very much on education. And so if I just sort of set, I'll set the stage for the vision. So we always, you know, we're very visionary. New role in the, for the 21st century for arborists, fellers, foresters, is to reduce the risk of catastrophic fire for communities. So imagine private land owners starting to bring in professionals to enhance the ecological integrity of the forests on their property in a way that increases the, the retention of the downed wood and carbon inputs into the forest floor which then promotes increased moisture retention. We get more of the native understory, which is fire resistant, recovering so that we're actually, and creating light so that we are starting to let the, some of the trees mature and grow to achieve some kind of old growth state and thicker bark, which could then start to generate revenue from tree thinning, which then creates a whole new supply outside a community forest from individual properties in a way that is actually creating a more sustainable employment in an ongoing and slower way for on the islands. And so we're kind of making these, this is a new way forward for, for foresters. What's exciting about that is some people are already kind of doing that through their community forests and doing really excellent jobs. We have this climate coach program, which is really, it's a vehicle that we use to engage with not the usual suspects about, you know, progressive things they can do. And we started off with, with just, we'll help you navigate all the rebate programs for, you know, replacing your windows, getting ductless heat pumps, you know, all these different programs is overwhelming. And so we started to provide that service and we're helping local businesses so they're getting more business, people are becoming more aware, people are getting, you know, rebates, we're helping that. And we're, we're really just trying to do a, we're not a not-for-profit, so we're really just trying to, you know, build the community. And I'm imagining us taking a similar role, not just on Salt Spring, but for Salt Spring and possibly the other islands where we could provide a climate coach service that is helping people. We have practitioners like Mark come on and talking about how, how to look at a forest because they don't know how people don't know how to look at a forest and answering questions about what to do. And then in the end, what happens is we get this sort of nice reciprocal circle where the people who are the more knowledge, the knowledge holders around managing 
forests well, start to get additional employment benefits from the community because then we're creating sort of a new occupations for them and new calls. So maybe Mark isn't available to do this because he's busy managing his own forest, but, but we have practitioners on Salt Spring. We have, I don't know if people know Seven Ravens Eco Forest with Michael Nichols on Salt Spring. He, he's, he wants this to be the next phase of his life is working on something like this. We're very partnership, we're seeing this as a whole regional thing because there's lots of knowledge everywhere and every island is going to need to do this. And interestingly, he is working with one of the old loggers on the island who really wants to shift to a similar kind of role. But this, this person had been responsible for clear-cut logging in the past with groups like Texada, and now he's working with an, you know, the eco-forester <laughs> for new jobs for the 21st century for, for foresters and fellers. So, so I'm, I'm excited about this. It's early days, but this is the vision and this is where, where we think that we can go because the reality is everybody's concerned about fire and our focus is very much to make people see the forest. Fire is natural, so we're not trying to prevent fire. We're trying to restore the features of our native forests to this area, such as the, we will not have large scale or catastrophic fires, which is the way that these systems had, had historically behaved. So it's kind of, you know, we're trying to get everything together in under the fire umbrella. Wow, thanks Ruth. That's amazing, a lot. How long have your sort of test plots been going? And maybe you can paint a bit of a picture for us on the timelines of that. And I'm also a bit curious about what your different strategies actually look like. Mm -hmm. So we've got, we, we've been working on this since November, 2021. So we're 14 months. We started off by setting up some long-term study plots to just collect line records of everything. The issues that the questions that we have are really about open versus closed canopy areas and how important that is in terms of the, the, the stress on the trees. So the competition for light competition for water but also for the lack of age, class, and structural diversity and, and species diversity in these systems. So we've got 40 test sites set up in a combination. We've got a factorial design for, for how we're looking at things because the questions are, to what extent is light a limiting factor in the, the more, in the growth of the trees and the recovery of the forests so we have these 4D plots with open and closed canopy. And then the second factor that we're looking at is the amount of moisture in the ground. And so for that, recognizing that anyone who wanted to simulate this kind of study design, you can't go out and monitor everything. So we use remote sensed information to, so we use the LIDAR and various data to, to identify areas that we would expect to be moisture and drier. And we set up a series of plots and then we, so we have this two by two open, closed, wet, dry. 
And so we're monitoring those over time. And then we also have selected areas where we have very close, like very dense forest where we want to do this get, skip and gap thinning. And we set equivalent plots up there so we can have before and after, and we can compare how the soil moisture, the, the, the tree density, and then we're setting up some secondary questions around why we might not be seeing understory regeneration. So one, of course, is deer, because we, like many islands, have a, a, a sig significant overabundance of deer. So there, are, there is deer as a factor. And so we're going to have part of the area fenced and part unfenced. And we're going to introduce seeds and see what the germination looks like in the fenced and unfenced area. So this is a shorter term you know, more immediate look at the role of herb herbivory in preventing the understory diversity. And then the second aspect of that introducing seeds is seed bank, because when we have not a lot of ground cover, we have, you know, a varied topography. And because of the historic logging, we have very compacted soils and it's very mineral shallow soils anyway. In my mind, I'm also wondering, do we even have seed stock? anymore. After 120 years, I'm not even sure if we have seed stock. So what we're trying to do is bring the forests to a more mature state more quickly, rather than letting it cycle through naturally. And so using seeds seems a reasonable thing to do. So that's, those are the treatments and the thinning is just happening. I just literally got a message this afternoon. They want to start Thursday. <laughs> so we were a bit delayed because of the drought this fall. That was the first thing. The second was a question, a critical question coming up from one of the, from a tree feller who said, workers' compensation board won't let us leave any standing dead trees. And, and so that kind of put the brakes on for me. So I thought if we can't address this concern, then we can't move forward. So I brought in Dean McGough, who is the, the chair of the Wildlife Danger Tree Committee for the province. And he came to our site and he did it, he did a walkthrough with us. And I was able to, to confirm that yes, indeed, you can leave <laughs> standing dead trees. But you know, part of this is cultural that you know that a lot of our a lot of the people on at least in this part, they've never worked really on commercial forestry operations. So they don't have the the training that a professional forester who worked for some of these big forestry companies would have, and they've learned it by doing. And so they don't have maybe the same understanding of forests and danger and they, as a professionally trained person would. So it was very reassuring for them to know that. But of course, there'll always be some people who, who don't feel comfortable leaving standing dead. And so we're going to show that that's a safe thing to do. So may, maybe next Thursday, we'll be starting that. So that's, we have the pre and then we'll have post monitoring. The, the other aspect of that is when we take this down, what do we do with it? And so we want to, we have, because we have had no age diversity in the forest, we really have a huge absence of wood returns to the forest floor. And I imagine they're, they're very carbon impoverished after all the forestry and the significant fires that we had associated with that in the area. So we want to leave coarse wood on the ground and we also want to experiment with the management 
of fine fuels that would otherwise be seen as well fuels fine woods that would be seen as a fuel typically so i've got i've got a student from ubc setting up an experimental design using kind of permaculture techniques so creating I've been told not to call them berms, I was calling them berms, but basically piles of the fine branches that will be set up and we're still deciding the how to narrow down the treatments, but the idea is to have a control that is probably just going to be branches with some chips to remove the, the any kind of air between the layers of branches. And we'll have another one that is the, the equivalent, but we're actually going to introduce a layer of biochar on the interior because we'll, the assumption there is the biochar would hold more moisture and then it could actually increase the water moisture and decomposition rate in the, in the pile. Another one that I'm really interested in is just simply using wood ash from fireplaces, which is very, you know, and we think about property owners, it's something that biochar is a little bit more complex to get, but it's actually much easier to, to just go to your fireplace or go to your neighbor and get some wood ash. So we'll try wood ash. And then the other one that's very interesting is the idea of, of taking a mycorrhiza. So taking some fungal source from some of the other rotting materials in the area. So we're not introducing anything foreign and actually inoculating piles with, with fungus in order to accelerate the potential decomposition and then the ensure that we have higher moisture and we have, instead of dry decomposition, we have moist decomposition by, by injecting with the fungus. So that's what we want to try and we're gonna be monitoring. We've got some sampling methods that we have in mind to monitor the decomposition and the moisture content in these piles. So that's another thing that we're doing. And we will also be, as we're opening up light, we will be in about five years, we'll do, we'll do some cores on some of the trees that have been exposed to improved light penetration to see if we can detect benefits in the, in the growth rings for them. So those are the things that we're currently working on. And the relationship I'm also working to, to build on as additional resources is we've got the University of Victoria restoration program where the, the students are, um, because not just because of COVID, but because of costs, they don't actually have much hands-on field experience and they're chomping at the bit to come out and actually do some restorative work because they're learning about it and they're learning about techniques and they, they will go and on UVic campus and they'll try some monitoring, et cetera, but they're not actually doing. So I'm trying to forge a relationship there because I see the UVic students as quite, quite a good resource. It's the, <laughs> they don't want a full-time job. They just want to come for a week or two, which is kind of perfect and work really hard. <laughs> so, and they'll also work for an honoraria. And if you billet them and feed them, then, you know, like they're, you know, they just really are so keen to get out there and to do some work. So I'm hoping that we will expand that and that we might, maybe we can offer more of these kind of opportunities for students through the Gulf Islands, like field experiences for them, because the, the, the UVic program really is, I'm hearing this from a lot of the students that, I, that I'm connecting with there, that they really, they expected they would do some hands-on restoration and, it's, and sadly they haven't had opportunities. So that's kind of exciting too. Cool. 
How long do we have to fire questions at you? You have other plans this evening, I understand. Yeah, I do. Maybe like 15, 20 minutes, something like that, if that's okay. Yeah, that's that's good with me. Does anybody else from this room or, or on the Zoom have a question they want to ask Bruce? <laughs> Mark's unmuted. Why don't you go ahead, Mark? <laughs> Hi, Ruth. Nice to see you again. Thanks for joining us. I'm wondering about the thinning, the skip, the skip and opening or something thinning that you're talking about and in general, and also what, what kind of site is it that you're applying it on right now? That's, that's a great question. Not the area we hope to put it in because there's a covenant in the area we hope to, to put it in. And although I wrote a big, you know, thesis on why it would be beneficial, it seemed overwhelming to the primary covenant holder and they said, no. Not at this time. So we have we have a secondary site, which is which, which people say it doesn't really need thinning, but you know it does. The canopy is completely closed, and really what we're focusing on more because we couldn't work in that area. We're focusing more on demonstrating what that even in an area that looks like it's good, if we open up the canopy, there will be benefits, and that also the area has no wood on the ground very little because this particular area unlike the other where we'd like to work it did get one commercial thin about 30 years ago but the it was a standard commercial thin where it was equally spaced so the canopy is closed over it's very closed and we do have some understory but it's it's slow that's all we've got so what we're hoping is that we'll be able to open up the light see some improved tree growth, but also we'll be able to measure improved soil moisture over time. And also we're setting targets for the thinning. So we're developing the technique for the skip and gap. So you skip an area, you don't thin, and then you create a gap. And so what we're, as a demonstration, we're focusing on what are the criteria around which we have to select the areas to thin. And so when we were walking through this area, we in many areas, there'll be no wildlife trees whatsoever because they're all 60 year old trees. They look identical, they've got nothing. But in this case, we have a wildlife tree. It's a beautiful big snag. It's got a hole in it that we think that probably has an owl nesting in it. And so what we're gonna do is say, okay, when you do have these, you create, you identify the gaps in, in, a, in order to miss these features. So what are the features that we're retaining? Those areas are the skips. Those are the areas that we're not working in. And then we look for areas. So we're, we've got a, a list of, of sort of ecological features that we're looking for that will exclude areas from thinning. And then we have areas where if we're distant enough away from a snag or whatever, then we can do thinning. And we're, we've got, I believe we're looking at 20% as of the initial thinning in the area, but not as 20% across the whole area, but 20% clearings, like single clearings or multiple clearings, adding up in total to 20% in this area that we're working in. So that will be how we will we'll, we'll select and then the other thing that was very interesting having the wildlife danger tree expert with us is if we're dealing with these more narrow trees that have been over, overly limited in growth, we wanna do thinning. What he said is you need to think about, and this makes sense, 
how many feeding trees do you need for woodpeckers? So you're gonna then start to top some trees so that you're creating some potential feeding trees, some forage trees. But if you want a habitat tree, it needs to be a minimum certain diameter, 15 meters from the ground. So there, we're starting to set up criteria that if we have a, a mono stand that doesn't have those features, then we're gonna do the, the, the gap clearing and the topping of trees in a way that will introduce forage trees for woodpeckers and the potential nesting habitat that is currently not present in that area. So we're using the wildlife features for that part. And then in terms of putting the wood on the ground, the large wood is going on the ground and, and we're not worrying about that other than to try to put a quantity on the ground that is not overwhelmingly dense for the forest. So we want to have inputs and then we want to have some top trees so that we are staging the introduction of coarse woody materials in the future as those fall over and decay and are recruited. And then the third is the, the, the fine fuel management where we're creating basically engineered, engineered nurse logs. So we're bringing the fine fuels together packaging them up in a way where they can support probably, you know, things like huckleberry and other kinds of native plants and behave like coarse woody material and start to create some ground habitat and increase carbon. So a lot of our goals are, are, are oriented around wildlife, soil moisture, carbon introductions. And then the other thing that we're also demonstrating, we decided in this site is we're going to take out some wood, take it to a local mill to do value added, and then also calculate the, the potential for cost recovery or profit for the fellers and millers on the island so that this could start to become, in, to some extent, a, a self-sustainable, like financially sustainable activity for groups like the Water District or the Conservancy that don't have the resources to hire people to come in to do this. Can we take some of the wood out? We'll have the standard that it has to be locally milled. We try to see how much could we recover while leaving enough wood on the ground so that we could actually create some, you know, some local wood supply out of this. Great, bye. I was just, I was curious about the applicability to like other zones in the area. So I think officially here we're like coastal western hemlock. I don't think there's where where we're working it is the western hemlock dominated. I think that this is pretty it's pretty transferable. I can't speak too much for up your way because I know that my, my I don't know but my my uh, my impression having been up there is that your moisture levels are much better than ours. So I think in a way we're kind of worst case scenario here with the amount of dryness. And one of the things that we're observing is that even in the areas that were are supposed to be coastal dug fir dominated more more the the more sort of moderate moisture, so not the dry forests, they're being overtaken by hemlock because the hemlock are doing really well with the exposure and the light and they get in and once they get in and they get really dense, then, then they actually start to shift the, the system. So we were talking about maybe the need to, to actually start removing hemlock as they come up in these areas because they're kind of replacing the, the more traditional stands. Thank you. 
<clears throat> Max, I have a question or and a comment. Great. Shall I just go ahead? Well, two things. One is just a comment. I mean, first of all, I think this is a really practical, very excellent presentation. And I would love to see this duplicated with more public notice to the Cortez community, maybe sponsored by FOCI, but also the SRD, because there's a lot of overlap there. And, and they've just completed this FireSmart program. And really, in terms of community public education, on private land, which you've raised that point is like, it's huge. So, cause I think there's probably, I mean, I, I'm, I'm don't think there's anyone here unless maybe Max is aware of where the SRD is operating. But my question was referring to the, the standing dead trees being left <clears throat> because I see in some of the SRD parks on Cortez, the Willtown Commons and elsewhere, that they often come in and remove these trees and they're doing it from a place I think maybe a public safety but also maybe again it's a fire a wildfire mitigation and and obviously from a bio you know biodiverse and ecological perspective we want to keep them mm -hmm. unless there's a real threat to the public and so I'm not sure that they're attuned to the really recent work that you seem to be doing so uh, that's more a comment I guess <laughs> yeah well you you make a really good point Christine because um when I was speaking to when I was speaking to the wildlife danger tree chair and also the person who really developed and is developing and and also following up on the latest understanding and research on this, what he said is that he talks to people all the time, you know, they the fellers, the companies, and many people have it really deeply ingrained in their head that it's that you can't have any danger. And a lot of this comes from potentially misinterpretation of what workers' compensation board is saying. So it's not necessarily that there really is a problem, but perception and understanding are, are you know, a big part of it. And he's kind of, you know, there's a, there's a number of people like himself that are the experts that you can get out and they can explain these things, but you have to pay for that, right? And so unless people unless some people are very motivated, and that's what he said, he said he gets people who are motivated to pay to come and take a course from him, but there are many people who don't. <laughs> and so you're right, we need to get the word out. This Gene is amazing. I mean, he's just, he was so knowledgeable and I had thought about recording it, the walk, but I decided not to because with a bunch of fellers there, I wanted everyone to be able to to feel free and have whatever conversation they wanted. And so I did not. And and I think that's important that everyone feels comfortable to be able to ask whatever questions they want. At the end of the day, there were there was one person in particular who who said, well, you know, you won't get leaving that behind because even knowing this, he doesn't have enough probably understanding of forests and trees to feel confident in making that decision himself so so there's only so much depending on how knowledgeable a person is who's doing the felling they will self-limit according to their understanding of risk and so the more experienced people are like I don't want to speak for Mark again, but I, I bet you Mark can tell, you know, a standing dead tree that is likely to fall down from one that is not going to fall down for an, another 20 years pretty readily. You know, I can't do that, but there are, you know, there are a lot of people who can just look and say, yeah, that one, 
it's not coming down for a long time. So it depends on the comfort and the experience of the person, which means that, that what I think is important is engaging more fillers and forest managers and bringing them to a, a level of comfort and also understanding why it's why it's important to do this. I mean, it's no skin off your nose is maybe good enough for a wildlife tree, but but also the other thing, the other question that came up with one of the, the fellers was, well, why don't I just take my chainsaw and I can cut up this log, the stump and spread it around because he's thinking, well, we just need to put the wood into the ground. But the stump was beautiful and moist and there's never going to catch on fire. I mean, it was just a beautiful example of what decomposition you want. And we had to explain to him that, but that's not the point. So, so I think rather than telling people, because when you tell people, if they don't understand, then they don't necessarily make, interpret it correctly. We have to actually get fellers teaching fellers so that they can explain it in ways that, that allow these people to leave and still understand how to make a decision kind of like the same we're talking with educating the public with their private land they need to be able to look at the forest and see it through different eyes like i did when i first started going out with fire experts and i was looking at all these areas with the the these <laughs> match matchsticks these trees just everywhere hung up on each other and boy it just looked like a massive you know 20 acre bonfire and and so I said the Ruth meter was like but the fire expert I was with said you know I mean the forest the whole area is in really bad shape so he looked and he said now this I'm not worried about this because there's no fine fuels number one and if you and if you these trees are big enough or you know even though they're some of them are more only 15 20 centimeters they're big enough if you don't have fine fuels the chances of them igniting are really small. And then the second thing is in our area, humans cause fire. So where's the, where's the ignition source? So then we have, so what we're doing is we're coming up with criteria to look at the level of hazard, not just from, you know, how much fuel is there, but also is it likely to have an ignition? If it has an ignition, is that, is that, ignition likely to take because there's enough fine imagine your fireplace if you put a log in there no matter what you do you're not going to set that thing on fire unless you have coals in there already right so it's the same kind of thing as I was learning how to look at the fuels my gauge started to shift and I no longer now I walk exactly those same areas and I no longer see the same danger that I did when I first walked through and so to me it's very powerful the knowledge of how to see things. And that's what you get from the public being able to hear from the professionals, the people who really intuitively, deeply understand risk and fire. And so that's, so those are the two different audiences, I think. One is the, the seller and manager community who maybe don't know these things or know them, but need to share them more and with others who don't know them. And then, and then secondarily, the people who live in a forest, so they don't look at the forest and just see potential fire risk when there actually may be none whatsoever. I spent a lot of time thinking about this, as you can tell. <laughs> I love that you're able to share all this without even any speaking notes. 
as all as all I do. <laughs>